is Good Faith Effort with Ari Lamb. And here's your host, Rabbi Dr. Ari Lamb. Hello, hello, and welcome to Good Faith Effort. I'm your host, Ari Lamb. We have an incredible show coming up. And by the way, while you're here, don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts because it really helps people find the show. We have the amazing author, writer, thinker, Michael Brendan Doherty here with us. We're going to talk fatherhood, tradition, community, nationhood. But before we get to all of that, a bit about what we do here. America has long been influenced by the ideas and values of the Bible, so each week we take a look at a different part of the Bible, we identify a big idea or a big question that comes out of it, and then we talk about it with authors, journalists, artists, faith leaders, and people from all sorts of backgrounds and traditions. So let's dive right into this week's big idea, which is all about being part of a family and a nation. So we're at the end of the book of Genesis. The legendary biblical figure is now living with his family in the land of Egypt, and he's old, so he's about to die. And so he gathers all of his children to his deathbed, and he blesses them. Now, that part's not weird. It's exactly what you'd expect. It's his last will and testament. Here's the legacy I'm leaving for you guys. And if Genesis ended there, it'd be perfect. Just roll credits. But it doesn't. Jacob's actual last words to his sons are, don't bury me in Egypt. Bury me back in the land of Canaan, what would eventually be known as the land of Israel, next to my parents and my grandparents. And that's it. I mean, that's basically how Genesis ends, with a scene in a funeral home. I mean, why? And why did Jacob even care so much about where he was buried? I mean, even if you're a person of faith who believes in the afterlife, like me, or I'm sure many of you, then still, who cares what happens to your physical body after your soul departs? But I actually think the answer is pretty clear, because here's what's about to happen to the Israelites. In the book of Exodus, the Israelites are about to become slaves in Egypt, and they would stay slaves for over 200 years. So for the very first time, the Jewish people were about to experience a challenge that they would end up facing for most of their history, and one that other nations experiencing the same thing would need to learn from, which is the experience of diaspora, living away from one's home. And the Jewish people mostly didn't live up to the challenge of diaspora when they were in Egypt. They abandoned so much of their responsibilities to God. The prophet Ezekiel would talk about it this way centuries later. They did not all cast away the abominations of their eyes, neither did they forsake the idols of Egypt. And in the face of the dominant cultural, commercial, and technological force that was the Egyptian empire in the ancient world, the Israelites came within an inch of just assimilating entirely. But in the end, of course, they didn't. And we talked about this last week in the episode with Tommy Collison, but the Israelites managed to hold on to just enough of their tradition, their faith, their language, that they were able to finally separate themselves from Egypt and craft their own nation, the people of Israel, with their own constitution, the Bible, in their own land, the land of Israel. And it was then that biblical civilization was born. But what was it that kept them from totally capitulating? in the face of such powerful, opposing cultural forces? What kept them from just giving in to the Egyptian melting pot? And I think the answer is Jacob. In insisting that he be buried in the land of Israel, he gave his children and his grandchildren and his great-grandchildren that sense, that nagging feeling always in the back of their head that no matter how much they got used to life in Egypt, there was always something out there, a place just over the horizon, that was waiting for them. By planting his mortal remains 
In his ancestral home, Jacob whispered a promise to his descendants that if they were brave enough, if they were faithful enough, they would always have some place where they wouldn't merely be guests, they'd be home. Now, contrast that idea that everyone should have something, a home, a culture, a set of values that belongs to them with the dominant assumptions of modern life, at least in America and much of Europe. Everything can be bought and sold. Everything's impermanent. There are no nations, only countries, only administrative units whose worth can be measured in GDP or test scores. And as for you, the individual, well, just be yourself. You don't have any obligations but the ones you choose for yourself. Now, that's all well and good, but it's also a recipe, I think, for soul-crushing loneliness. And the good news, though, is that you can escape that loneliness. You can, but it'll mean reaching for something much larger than yourself. And so to talk about all this, I brought the man who literally wrote the book on the topic, senior writer for National Review, a visiting fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, and author of the, I kid you not, hauntingly beautiful book, My Father Left Me Ireland, the amazing Michael Brendoherty. Doherty. Michael, thanks for being here. What an introduction. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be with you. So I just read your book, My Father Left Me Ireland, over the weekend. And as I, I said to you before we started talking, we actually just had a new baby daughter. Her name is Mindy, a week ago. So needless to say, I was crying my eyes out the entire time I was oh. reading your book, which is about what you go through as you're expecting your first daughter. But even if that hadn't been the case, it's it's a truly gorgeous book about fatherhood, a heritage lost and found, the beauty of belonging to a place and a nation. And, you know, the book is structured as a series of letters from you to your father, just as you're about to have your first child. So can you say just a bit about the background of the book and why you crafted it that way? Uh, sure. So in 2013, 2014, my wife and I were expecting our first child. And it was at a time of my life, it was a few years after my own mother had died, I was raised in New Jersey, an only child with a single mother. She had uh, fallen in love years earlier with my father, who is an Irishman. She's an Irish American. They conceived me, but they never married. And this was a source of like great heartache for her on her own behalf and on mine. And so I'm, I'm having my daughter. And, and naturally, when you have your first child, you start thinking about your own early childhood and the things that were a part of it, and what you want to bring into your child's life. And so I started thinking a lot about my sense of Irishness. And it was something my mother really had tried to instill in me. In, in many ways, kind of in the absence of my Irish father, she had given me this like treasury of songs and literature and just experiences with the Irish language even in my early childhood. And it's just started coming back to me. At the same time, as an adult, I was starting to become closer with my father, 3,000 miles away. And he's living in Ireland. He's living in Ireland with three half-siblings of mine, and he, he has a whole life there. He lived it there, and I lived my life here. But as adults, we were becoming closer. And then all of a sudden, I was just filled with this passion for things Irish. And at the very same time that I was going through this... Ireland itself was kind of going through its own attempt at memory and commemoration. Uh, it was going through these centennial events of these pivotal moments of its history in uh, 1912, 1914, the Home Rule Crisis, the onset of World War I. 
And then um, coming up were the Centennials of 1916, this amazing uh, doomed rebellion in Dublin that really is this fulcrum point in modern Irish history that kind of sets it at least 26 counties of Ireland on a course toward independence from the United Kingdom. So Ireland is going through this memory and I'm hearing voices from Ireland that are saying things like the former Taoiseach of Ireland coming on the radio in 2014. I'm listening to Irish radio in the morning and saying things like the dead have too much of a grip over the living. And I remember I just wanted to spit, right? Like I'm expecting this daughter and I'm hearing this. I'm thinking of my mother. I'm thinking of my grandparents. I'm thinking of the people that came to America to make a life for themselves. And I just remember this passionate anger welling up in me. And I wanted to say to the modern Irish, like, damn you, this may not mean anything to you anymore, but it means something to me. And it's going to mean something to my daughter. And um, what was kind of funny was at this time, I remember I got together and had brunch with two of my Irish half-sisters. And, you know, we told them the news that we were expecting a baby girl. And my wife told he's getting this Irish fever. And he's like singing songs and picking out, you know, these rebel songs that could be lullabies and things like that. That's amazing. And my sister said, you know... Dad said you would get into the Irish roots. And like the genesis of the book was sort of this passion was welling up in me. I felt this need to defend diaspora kind of nationalism and nationalist sentiment uh, against what I took to be like Ireland's very modern image of itself, which is is in many ways built on anti-nationalism. And, and there are a lot of reasons for that, for why Ireland is in that mode. And reasons I can remember even from my childhood, right? Where you could see excesses of nationalism and, and things like that. But I, I wanted to have this dialogue with modern Ireland, you know, to say, damn it, this is part of my inheritance too. I suppose in the end, it was also a way, and I don't want to sound too pious about this, but it was also a way when my daughter This was is the coming, show to sound pious. It's good faith effort, you know? <laughs> It was my way, in a way, of as my daughter was coming into the world and then as my son was coming into the world after her, of, um, you know, finally following the commandment to honor thy father and thy mother. You know, suddenly that commandment felt real to me in a, in a very different way. And, and by the way, like that point, I'd say that's the great debate at the heart of like modern American or maybe Western life. It's about the question of whether a person can be obligated by anything at all that they didn't opt into. Right. And I think increasingly, you know, elite culture, not to put too fine a point on it, but elite culture in this country and across the West is skeptical of anything that can impose a prior restraint on you, not your past, not your religion, not your family, basically anything you didn't choose freely. But I do think that many normal people still accept at some level that your parents can be a source of obligation in some way, right? You should be good to your parents. You should honor them and so forth. But what you do in the book, and you do it so evocatively, and I think it's so brilliant, is you connect that natural intuition to honor your parents 
you know, even not in a Ten Commandments sense, but just in a general sense, that natural intuition to honor your parents with the concept of nationhood. Right. And it's it's you taking your relationship with your father seriously, your absentee father essentially seriously, that leads you to take Irishness seriously. So can you unpack that path from honoring your parents to national belonging? So you're right to draw attention like to the um, the fact that I didn't want the book to be didactic, right? I, I wanted it to follow just the natural story of my own heart. And I kind of connected that modern struggle with our inheritance or our patrimony, right? Like those are words that almost don't make sense in the modern world or to a lot of modern people. And so what I did was I kind of showed my own upbringing as a kind of fatherless child in America with a single mother and this modern world kind of opening up in my teenage years in the 1990s where just this overpowering message from the larger culture was you can be whoever you want to be and do whatever you want to do. It's all up to you. And I I wanted to connect that sense of um, you can be whoever you want to be with this kind of sense of isolation or alienation, right? That like, in fact, there's a kind of subtle undercurrent of the message of like, nobody is obligated to you either. Right. Right. Like you're not obligated to anyone and nobody's obligated to you in a sense. Right. That's the, the struggle any child from a fatherless home has, right. Is this idea of, you know, um, someone has left their obligation to me, right. Someone has, has kind of abandoned their obligation to me. And so naturally for a child raised that way, this kind of, world of just choosing your obligation seems to make an intuitive amount of sense, but it's also tinged with this kind of horror, right? That this idea that you can just choose your obligations, that you can just walk away from anything without dishonor is the basis for, you know, some of the miseries of your own childhood. So I wanted to confront that and then confront this other thing, right? Which is that, you know, my mother had given me these songs and these stories and this and little bits of this dying language. And none of it kind of hung together for me in my youth exactly. They were just kind of ornaments kind of lying about the house. And in many ways, in the 1990s, there was in America this kind of Irish moment culturally where it seemed like Irish stuff was just bleeding out of the big box stores like Borders Books, like Riverdance and Lord of the Dance and these big um, <laughs> sad memoirs like Angela's Ashes. And there was a Hollywood movie, Michael Collins, about one of the lead Irish nationalist rebel leaders. That's Liam Neeson, right? Liam Neeson, yeah. And he, and he kind of like punks out at the end. Yeah, there's a lot going on at the end there. Anyway, when that commercialization happened, that kind of turned me off the Irish thing for a while. But then I, I gradually, right in the light of my own daughter, I started to see what it was my mother was giving me. And in a sense, like, that I still had a claim, even through an absent father, who I only saw intermittently through childhood, that I still had a claim on something that was his as well. And uh, that this um, tradition of nationhood in Ireland also gave to me a way of adhering to these deep virtues like deep virtues you need as a father of self-sacrifice and connecting to something larger. That the romantic story of Irish history, which many modern Irish feel as a kind of, you know, imaginative tyranny over them 
uh, that actually this was like a huge source of strength for me at that time in my life when I had to kind of take on this idea of like, okay, I am responsible now for these children for the rest of my life. And there's nothing I can do to disclaim that bond, right? That, that obligation is always on to me. And I love also like that sense of being able to use tradition and your patrimony to take life moments, kind of make them seem more possible to confront. Earlier this year, my family, we lost my grandmother. She died pretty early in the COVID mm, very sorry. Uh, plague. Thank you. She was like an, this incredible woman. I mean, it would have been a tragedy in any under any circumstances, but the tragedy at the time was, you know, given how little we knew about the disease, none of us could be with her. Like one person could mm. be in a room with her at a time in a hazmat suit. And so as a consequence, she died alone. She died alone. And I remember thinking at the time um, and reading this book, it's going to be a miracle if I make it through this podcast without crying. Um, I knew that going in. <laughs> but w one, of the mo one of the magical things about your book was that it really helped me grapple in my own right with the idea that, you know, when she passed away, the rituals of Jewish mourning, and not just like the shiva that you see on TV or whatever, but like the real rituals of Jewish mourning that structure every second of every day for basically seven days and 30 days, then a year and longer than that after a loved one passes, really not just brought comfort, but helped me feel like I was paying tribute to her terrible, terrible death in a way that was fitting. And as I read your book, I thought to myself, yes, this is maybe one of the strongest arguments for a tradition. Like, how could I possibly be so arrogant as to imagine that in the face of a massive tragedy or even just the normal laws, how could I be so arrogant as to believe that I could like freestyle off the dome in the moment, some fitting right. tribute to, a, to that person. But tradition comes along and tells you exactly how to behave because for hundreds of, if not thousands of years, people have been thinking carefully about this. They were thinking carefully about this long before my grandmother was even a baby, right? So does tradition right. kind of make grief or birth or other momentous occasions seem kind of more manageable? For me, it's definitely what I turn to just naturally. The idea of like reinventing it from scratch or, you know, the kind of the first thought I had of like, okay, this little girl is going to come into my life. She's going to come home from the hospital. She's going to come out of my life. And I'm going to have to start talking to her and singing to her, putting her to sleep, putting her down for a nap. What should I sing? And like, there are a bunch of like little songs I like that are like little pop songs or little things that were important to me, but it felt arrogant. It felt like I'm imposing just myself on her by doing that. Whereas if I'm singing songs I remember my mother singing at Irish uh, cultural festivals in the 1980s. I'm giving something of my mother to her. And then if these songs carry meaning and stories and something noble in them, then just the fact that I sung them over these children when they were infants itself like gives them another chance to attach themselves to those noble thoughts and ideas and those ideals and to draw strength from them, right? And so that just seemed like a higher purpose for them. You know, because like now my first daughter is six years old going on seven uh, next year and I don't get to sing to her every night the way I used to, but I did, right? And when she asked questions, these are the answers I can give her. Like I sang the Foggy Dew. I sang 
the mountains of Morn. I sang all these songs about this place or these people, and they belong to you now. And they're bigger than me. So, you know, we think of the sort of community and sense of belonging that we're talking about now as being eroded, at least in the popular discourse, right? As being eroded by the world of like big tech that we live in. Mm. But I feel like those things also maybe make a more robust sense of community possible, at least like relative to the 90s, right? So like, for example, think about a lot of the things that you describe in the book um, being part of a language community. Like just oh, last yeah. night in, in preparation for this podcast, I was thinking about like doing the horribly cheesy thing that I'm glad I didn't do, which was like, you know, saying my catchphrase at the top and like, you know, in Gaelgo, which, you know, I now know is is what I should say instead of Gaelic or I probably <laughs> should say Irish, right? Right. So, you know, but like there are all these, I, I honestly just Googled Irish, how to learn Irish, and all these incredible resources popped up. And it wasn't just someone getting on a screen and saying, you know, here's how you do this declension, or here's how you do first, yeah. second, and third person. It in, Invariably, and maybe this is unusual for Irish, but I don't think that it is, invariably, you always had someone coming on who gave you a prologue about, you know, how many people speak Irish, why do so few people speak Irish? It's because of the English. And, you know, you'll always hear somebody, I mean, at least in three of the videos that I watched and I clicked at random, <laughs> right? You had somebody mentioning Patrick Pierce, right? So, right. Yeah, yeah. you know, so, um, these like foundational figures of the, you know, of the 20th century in Ireland. And so is it possible that a world of technological innovation is really maybe a friend to community in that sense? It allows it to be possible? I mean, it can be. I have to say, I mean, one of the things that changed in the relationship between my father and I was, it's just cheaper to talk to him now. When I was a young boy in the 1980s, an international phone call to Ireland could be like a serious expense on the phone bill. And, and so we didn't enjoy that much. We sent letters uh, or he sent letters to me. Most of them I didn't return a response to. I mean, now if I think of him or he thinks of me, you know, we fire off a little text and have that little moment of connection. And then if the time is right, you know, I can put his face, I, I can beam his grandchildren into his kitchen over FaceTime or likewise. And um, yeah, that's that's been a huge help. And, you know, the little Irish that I, I've managed to master, I, I did with the help of, you know, a teacher in Donegal, who's actually not even in Donegal. He was raised there, but he's... He's living in Spain, learning Spanish. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, so um, a big shout out to Sam O'Ferry. Now we're talking. My mother actually, when she was trying to learn the Irish language, you know, she wrote to my father and asking, like, can you make photocopies of a book and send it over here that we could share with this class? Um, you know, because the, the resources just weren't available. You also have like I think I think in that letter in your book you also mentioned that the letter begins with your mother saying to your father like if I thought that Ireland was like you I would bomb it you know yeah <laughs> yeah yeah well I mean part of I mean and I then think... paragraph two is by the way I need some photocopies <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly well and you know that's also something I've kind of learned in my adulthood too which is that belonging to something a family and a nation involves just invariably being annoyed with it and being uh, absolutely finding it a burden and finding it you know intolerable right i mean that's in in effect that's where my relationship with ireland was at the beginning of this book 
and where it still is to some degree. And in many ways, it probably resonates with much of the biblical accounts, right? Where you find the prophets are scolding Israel for being indifferent to God, for being indifferent to their nationality, to their traditions. And that's kind of the the attitude I found my, myself forced into at the beginning. And I, I don't flatter myself, you know, a prophet for Ireland. Uh, I'm just someone who loves that country and feels fathered by it in some ways and finds it hurtful when the native Irish take it for granted at times. Although I understand why, because I too took it for granted. So yeah, I wanted to kind of, in the book, kind of embody that journey. And and partly it was also, you know, there was a political project behind it too, where I think a lot of people have encountered the word nationalism in the past five years or six years. And they associate it with figures that they find scary or loathsome in some way, whether it's Donald Trump or Vladimir Putin or Viktor Orban or, you know, someone else. They associate nationalism purely with this kind of exclusionary element that's in it. And that is part of this history. And I I wanted also to kind of address that, right? And in a way, what better nation to address it than Ireland, which is not seen... And has never really been seen as a kind of oppressor state. Um, and it's not entirely true. I mean, if you know Irish history, you know that when the Irish Catholics had the upper hand, they could be very tough on Irish Protestants or Irish Jews. So Ireland shouldn't necessarily crown itself a, a pure victim martyr in this cause. But in general... Um, pedagogically it's a good it's an easy example you can, yeah. you can talk about irish nationalism in, in this positive force right of this of a people that were within an imperial structure or a, a government that a majority of people did not want at the time it was imposed upon them most of them didn't want it for much of the time it existed over them and they wanted to break free and they wanted to break free why to preserve their sense of nationhood, their language, their traditions, their heroes, their saints, their religion. And most people find that uh, a lot to admire in that scrappy fight of a small nation against a big empire. So, you know, I wanted to bring that out, right? And how, in a sense, Irish nationalism of 100 years ago was in dialogue with you know, I don't know if you could even detect it in some of the quotations, but like the big figures like Patrick Pierce or Owen McNeil, you know, in effect, they were reading Herzl. They were reading Herder in German. They were reading other nationalists and they were including early Zionist figures. Herzl, you mentioned, right? Just as people find it today, they were internationalist nationalists, right? right. And people find that kind of weird today. Like, shouldn't American nationalists hate or be totally indifferent to the Hungarians or the Israelis? But in fact, like in history, they were rooting for each other in many cases or trying to learn from each other. Um, that, that actually brings me to my last question for you, which is, honestly, before I read this book, I thought of you and I still think of you as, you know, like a very prominent American thinker. And, you know, you're like a wildly awesome follow on Twitter. So there's that, oh, too. But like, geez, thank you. I think of you as talking about like American questions. So how do you translate your national belonging, your Irishness into the American project? Right. Is there an American nation? How does it interact with your Irishness? You know, I'm an Orthodox Jewish rabbi and a religious Zionist. So as you can imagine, I obsess about these questions a fair amount. But I'm curious how you think about them. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a fair point. I mean, one of the hardest reviews of my book said like, okay, but you were raised in America. What do you owe America? 
And the answer is quite a lot. And probably if I'd grown up in Ireland, I you know, might have done a different book about America. Um, right. The duality of my identity is, is based on the fact that my father is Irish, that I have access to the Irish state if I need it through him. And my mother's kind of cultural, the revival of her kind of Irish identity through him. But we're also Americans. And America is a nation. And it has imprinted on me quite a lot. And in fact, it's the source of a lot of probably my frustrations with the Irish people and culture too, is this dual identity. So for instance, not that I address this in the book, but just something that comes up all the time when I visit Ireland is that I absolutely hate the kind of class system in Ireland, which is very subtle and it's not talked about, but the way social class works in Ireland is very different from the United States. And in fact, makes England look like a classless society in many ways. <laughs> Which is an achievement. <laughs> it's a total achievement. No, I mean, the English class system, in my opinion, and I know a little bit about this because my, my godmother's in London, you know, the English class system helps different classes of people avoid each other. Right. Whereas in the Irish society, like your your class membership is like a weapon you take out onto the street and wield against each other in every <laughs> personal interaction. I, I mean, in Ireland, it's, it's there's an instant recognition on the street of who's up and who's down relative to each other. It's really something. I also, you know, you know, there's an American sense of grandeur and ambition that I like wish the Irish would embrace sometimes uh, or take from their cousins over here. So, yeah, the American nation, and I have duties to the American nation as well, right? And that could include anything. At this point in my life, it'd be more like thinking about my sons, how they might serve the country right. in war or in uh, with their careers. And yeah, I mean, I, I do also consider my, my public career in controversy as a kind of, in its own way, like a service. Like I am putting my my brain and my pen to use for what I believe is the betterment of the America and for its, um, you know, for its, the improvement of itself internally. And then for also for its prestige and its place in the world itself, which I think is vitally important. So, you know, I'm happy if people accuse me of dual loyalties, I do have dual loyalties. If America ever, God forbid, came to some like big controversy with Ireland, that would tear me up. If there was some service I was doing for America and I couldn't perform it because of my attachment to Ireland, I would have to give it up. Uh, that's fine. I think it's just natural to have those dual loyalties and those those dual affections. I mean, we that's the nature of our personality. Maybe it will fade in time, right? Like if my children don't marry Irish people, you know, that, that sense of Irishness could at attenuate over time. And maybe that'll be a great reason for mourning for me in the future. Maybe not, you know, that's sort of uh, a history in its own right, right? Like, and a very different book could be written about the way that Irish Americans have lost a lot of their attachment to Ireland. Unlike Jews, we, you know, the Irish don't have this history of wandering from land to land and being expelled. And, and so we don't have this, um, this same kind of attachment to the homeland. I know some people have tried in, in Ireland have talked about you know, that it would be advantageous for Ireland as a, as a state and as a nation to develop stronger relations with the diaspora, to kind of invite them 
over, very much modeled on Israel. Right, like Israel has like a ministry for diaspora affairs, you know. Right, Ireland has very minimal stuff like this, but like um, the economist David McWilliams has talked about how, you know, Ireland should fund programs to bring Irish Americans and Irish Canadians and Irish Australians to the west of Ireland in their formative teenage years and Irish birthright. I love it. <laughs> Expose them to the traditions. Uh, and, right. and I totally uh, would have loved that. Yeah, I've, I, I don't know if I've answered the question to what are my duties to America, but, um, you know, maybe that's the, that's another book. Well, even asking the question, I think, is a noble thing. And this has really been wonderful. So you guys can follow Michael on, on Twitter at MichaelBD. And please, if you have a soul, go and do yourself a favor and buy My Father Left Me Ireland wherever you get your books. And Michael, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much. Take care. We live in a culture that's increasingly suspicious of any attachments or obligations. If you want to be happy, just be yourself. But as we've seen in the last several decades, even more in the last couple of years, and especially in a year like 2020, severing yourself from all attachments, from family, community, or faith, isn't a recipe for success. It's a prescription for misery. You may get to be yourself, but you have to do it by yourself, and that's extremely lonely. But the good thing is you can overcome that loneliness. You can grab onto something that's yours and never let it go, even after death, like Jacob. Now. That may mean you need to put up with some constraints on yourself. It may mean putting up with people who will sometimes annoy you. And it may mean obligating yourself to others, whether to your faith, to Ireland, to your community, to your society, to your family. But if you do, I promise it'll be well worth it. This is Ari Lam making a good faith effort. I'll see you next time. Faith Effort was created and written by Ari Lam. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice, because it really helps others find the show. Our executive producer is Josh Cross. The show is produced and edited by Paul Ruest. This is a Joshua Network podcast presented by B'nai Zion. Follow us on Twitter at GFaithEffort. Follow Ari at Ari Lam and sign up for our email list at thejoshuanetwork.com. The Joshua Network is now Soul Shop.